good evening. Good evening. I am glad that you're here. Uh, so like a day and a half ago is when I started the uh, next round of sinus infection protocol. So what that means is um, we'll just, I don't know how long the voice is going to last. So some of you that decide to sit way outside of the spit range um, may start having to lean in to uh, if, I, if I start getting quieter and quieter and quieter. So glad that you are here. We are going to be in John chapter 17. John chapter 17. So last week, uh, well actually like two weeks ago, when we had started back on Sunday nights, we had talked about some different topics that um, you all would like to cover. Different subjects that you think would be helpful or just different areas of the Bible that you think would be profitable for us to spend more time in examining or looking at. So one of the things at the top of the list was prayer. So last week we were in where? Matthew what? Matthew 6. Okay, so we are in Matthew 6 looking at prayer. Specifically, the model prayer that Jesus gives us out of Matthew 6. So it wasn't a, this is what Jesus prayed, but just it was that Jesus was teaching his disciples, pray like this. And so last week we looked at the model prayer out of John or Matthew chapter 6. And through that, um, I just tried to give you some tools that maybe you can think of when it comes time to your prayer life. Because Jesus in Matthew 6 not only shows us that prayer is a verb, but also that he expects us to pray. That's why you see at least three times he puts in there, when you pray. There's an expectation that we will pray. And within that, we talked about there's a a couplet, if you will, and there are a set of threes. If you remember, I don't know, maybe some of you are looking at me like, I don't know, I don't remember what he's talking about. So we talked about there being three. In the model that Jesus gave us, there's three up, where he was talking about the place, the posture, and the position. As we are praying, we are humbling ourselves, we are submitting ourselves to God, and we come to God, remember, we are praying to heaven, where God is, remember that we're praying with a purpose of coming to be heard by God and we want to make sure the posture of our heart is in keeping with humility and keeping with an attitude that is pleasing to God. Then the second half of that prayer was the three down, the things that we are praying to God about. Be thoughtful when we're coming to God, that we're praying for things that are pleasing and are in accordance with God's word and God's will. So we are talking about that we pray for today, help for today, bread for today, direction for today, forgiveness for yesterday, and then direction for tomorrow. So we are talking about these out of the three, um, or the, those examples that Jesus gave us out of the model prayer. So I told you that for the next few weeks, we are going to talk about um, the examples that we have of prayer in the New Testament. Now this is not going to be exhaustive, but we're going to look at Jesus' prayer here in John chapter 17. Next week, Lord willing, we're going to be in Acts chapter 4 looking at the prayer of the disciples. And then... The week after that, we're going to look at two. There's more than just two. We're going to look at two primary prayers of Paul as he's writing in Ephesians chapter 3 and Philippians 1. And so the goal is is to see these different elements of prayer, both in Jesus, the disciples, and Paul. Those same elements are reflective back in the model prayer that Jesus gave in Matthew 6. So, tonight we're going to be in John chapter 17 because it is considered, some of your headings might say something differently, but it's considered to be the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, can anybody share 
tell, explain what is the context coming into John chapter 17. Maybe like, where is Jesus at? Maybe like, what is going on right now in the life around Jesus? Maybe like, the events that led up to this? Anybody willing to take a stab at the setting of this prayer? Okay, so, (laughs) that's fine. That's good. So, if you go, um, and you don't have to turn there, but if you turn all the way back to John chapter 13, there is what Bible scholars will talk about, the upper room discourse. So, John, the Gospel of John, is unique in the fact that it gives us a recording of what happened the night before Jesus was arrested. So, if you think about your timeline of what is going on here, Jesus... And his 12 disciples get together in what is considered the upper room to observe the Passover meal. The Passover meal comes to an end. Before it comes to an end, Judas has left to go and to lead the religious leaders and the religious guards to where Jesus was going to be at later in the garden. And so he leaves to go do that. Jesus leaves the upper room. makes his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And depending on Matthew and Mark and Luke, they show different uh, snapshots of this. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He spends time in prayer. He's asking his disciples to pray. All they do is fall asleep. And it is there in the garden where Judas then brings the temple guards and they arrest Jesus. We tracking? Some of that sound familiar? Okay. Arrest Jesus. Take him to who? Caiaphas. Okay, so they take him to the high priest and then he gets bounced around. So he goes to the high priest, then he'll go to Pilate and then he'll go from Pilate to Herod and then from Herod back to Pilate and then Pilate will eventually turn him over to to be crucified. Alright, so John chapter 13 to John chapter 16 is considered the upper room discourse. It's the only gospel that records what happened in the room when Jesus is having this final supper with his disciples. So John 13 starts off with foot washing. Okay? So there, if you go to like Mennonite churches or even other churches, they will consider there to be three ordinances in the church. Baptist church here, we have two ordinances. What are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's right. There's other faith practices that have three ordinances and they add foot washing. So the Mennonite brethren out in Fairview, Oklahoma, when I did a wedding out there, um, that was one of the elements that they observed regularly was foot washing. And when I asked them, tried to be very kind and very humble, but just say, why is that an ordinance? They say, because Jesus modeled it for us in John 13. The same way that Jesus modeled for us baptism, and the same way that Jesus modeled for us the uh, institution of the Lord's Supper. So, we are just following the model of Jesus. I'm grateful that our Baptist heritage and Baptist tradition does not include toe fungus because I'm not a big fan. <coughs> so, John 13, you start this upper room discourse, then you get through John 15 and start um, through John 16, and then in 17, you have the high priestly prayer. Now, whenever 
I was in Bible college at Liberty University, one of the classes I took was on the Gospel of John. And it was taught by a man by the name of Elmer Towns. And Dr. Towns um, was a very seasoned, a very experienced, and he spoke like a very knowledgeable Bible scholar. And when I got in this class, and we got to this section of Scripture, his opinion was that when you get to John chapter 17, that Jesus is actually praying this prayer in the Holy of Holies. Now, that would require a little bit of knowledge about what is happening here. So, they are in Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem you have the temple. Now, if you think about it, if you go to the end of your Bible, you may have a diagram or maybe a picture, or maybe your memory is fresh enough about uh, the Jewish temple, but when you had the temple, it was a physical building and stopped being the tabernacle of Moses and being a tent. It was now a physical building. Solomon built one. Herod built one. <clears throat> but within, when you come to the temple, you have the outer court, which is outside of the temple. And that is considered the court of the Gentiles. And then you go into the temple and there are it's divided in two rooms. At the first room is where you have the different tables and the lampstands and the incense burning and all that stuff. And that is where the priest would work preparing the elements and the offerings to God. You would go through the purple veil and that is where you'd step into the Holy of Holies which is where traditionally the Ark of the Covenant was at, which is where you had the cherubim and they believe that is where the presence of God resided. You go back to Luke chapter 1 and when Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, he is appointed as the priest that one time a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, he would go in there and offer the atonement for the people. So when Dr. Towns said that Jesus is in the Holy of Holies, there was all kinds of questions in the class about how Jesus, who's being wanted by the temple officials, makes it into the temple mount, makes it through the temple courtyard, makes it through that first room and gets through the veil into a place that nobody was supposed to or ever allowed to go except for that one priest on that one day of the year. Dr. Towns in his very stately attitude says, well, let me explain to you. On the temple, it doesn't show it in most of your drawings, but there was a side door. (laughs) And he claimed that Jesus had made a arrangement with one of the keepers of the temple and they left the side door cracked. So Jesus bebops up to the fire door, the fire exit, and slides in through the back door, if you will, and gets into the Holy of Holies. Now, I found Dr. Towns to be an incredible wealth of knowledge 99% of the time. On this instance, I said, baloney. Did not buy it whatsoever. But the question comes, where was Jesus when he offered this priestly prayer? Some people have said that he was still in the upper room when he offered this prayer. Some people would say that he's left the upper room because you get to Mark chapter 10. Um, At the last part of Mark chapter 10, after they got through having the supper, they left. Some people think that he is somewhere in in transition, in... in, uh, Traveling from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. <clears throat> Some people may say that he is somewhere in the Garden of Gethsemane, except for this prayer. Doesn't align to the prayer that you see in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus is praying and he has the great agony and the and the drops the, the sweat as drops of blood are coming down, it doesn't match. So somewhere in this timeline, Jesus is praying this priestly prayer. You may say, Well, Spence, why does it matter where it was at? I think sometimes we gotta be careful. 
Because there will be some people that will choose to major on the minor and will try to extract and try to bring all of these things in to make us think that they sound smart or they sound cool. And we need to be aware that, you know what, it doesn't matter where Jesus prayed the high priestly prayer. What matters is, is the content of his prayer. So, John chapter 17, the entire chapter is the prayer of Jesus. Now, it's a difficult chapter. And it's a difficult prayer because of the way that Jesus prays. Not because he is a difficult person to read, but it is difficult to try to diagram or to try to lay out in some type of an outline fashion of how this is laid before us. So what I'm going to do in my best attempt to try to break this down in bite size that we can look at, the translation that I'm reading out of the English Standard Version, it breaks it up in three paragraphs. Verse 1 through verse 5 is a paragraph. Verse 6 through verse 19 is a paragraph. And verse 20 down through verse 26 is a paragraph. Now the paragraphs are not inspired. That those breaks are not inerrant, infallible. It's just the translation committee said we feel like there's some breaks as far as in the content or in the subject of the prayer. And as I've read through the prayer, I think there's some divisions that we can see that kind of fold them or that kind of draw themselves out. So what I want to do is I want us to consider tonight um, three different elements of the prayer of Christ. The first one is Christ's relationship to God. Then we're going to look at God's relationship to the followers, and then we're going to look at Christ's relationship to the followers. So we're going to just kind of look at how these elements of the prayer of Jesus is given for us. So again, in John chapter 17 and verse 1, it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give Him eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You may say, well, there's a lot there. How do I diagram that? How do I pick that apart? How do I look and to see what are some examples? What are some models? What are some principles that we can look to? But like I said to me, when I'm reading through this and I'm thinking through this, we get the picture of Christ and his relationship to God. You get back to verse 1. He says, Father. He's submitting himself, recognizing that he is not God. Now it gets dicey. Because we realize that the Godhead is a trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And yet, if they are one in three distinct persons, then it can be confusing when Jesus is praying, Heavenly Father, or God. And you see that you have the same person in spirit praying to one another. And I don't know about you, but my brain begins to hurt. My head starts to hurt and trying to say, you know, how in the world does this work? And yet we see it where Jesus comes in his earthly body and he's praying. He's submitting to God. Verse 3, 
He says, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God. There's a picture of recognition. He is saying, not only am I submitted to you because I know you are the Father, I recognize that who you are and what you are. And then in verse 5, he says, glorify me in your presence and with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Not only do you see submission, recognition, but you also see petition. And I would, I would ask you to consider if we don't also see place, posture, and purpose. Jesus knows where he's praying. Jesus has a heart to know why he's praying. Because there's only one true God. And Jesus has a purpose in why he's praying. Because he's coming to communicate to God. Now the question that strikes me. Why did Jesus pray? Okay. Okay. I don't think there's a wrong answer. And I, if you're waiting, like, well, Spence knows the answer. No, I, there's no answers at the back of the book. So it's kind of, you really just can't go back and say, well, you know, the odds and the evens are back here. But, but why did Jesus pray? If he just said, God, we are one. And if you think about verse 5, he says, the glory that I had with you before the world existed. What is he referencing? He's referencing back to the idea that before all of this existed, before all the world existed, this goes back to Colossians chapter 1, that he is the preeminent, that he existed before everything. John chapter 1. In the Word, or in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So why did Jesus pray? Well, he also talks about himself in the third person. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so Matt said he talks about himself in the third person. Some of y'all are looking at me like I'm crazy. Have have you not ever considered why Jesus prays to God? This is Jesus Christ be glorified. Yeah. Okay. To glorify him. Yes. Just to set the example. I, I think. I think so. I think so. So you have Jesus that understands the value of glorifying God, the value of setting the example, the value of modeling unity. And if it was important enough for Jesus to pray, then why don't we pray? Well, it was also important enough to Jesus to be baptized. Yes. Yes. It was. Yes. You know, but sometimes we start to think, and I don't know if you've ever heard it. I've heard it before where people say, well, God knows my heart. God knows what I'm thinking. God knows what I need. And so they skimp on prayer. They skimp on the practice of prayer because they just assume, I don't have to pray because God knows everything anyways. Or you may hear people say, well, I don't see why I should have to pray. If God knows everything, then why do I got to tell him anything? That's right. That's right. But so many times we we can skip past this whole picture that... If Jesus had to pray, surely we should have to pray. And and I put this here in my notes that our relationship with God should reflect the relationship that Christ models for us between Him and God. But so many times we just think, God, I'm coming to you. 
And I've got my list of, I've got my grocery list. I've got my shopping list. These are all the things that I want. These are all the things that I expect. These are all the things that I want you to do, that I expect for you to do, that I'm telling you you have to do. And I'm going to give you the timing on when to do it. And I'm going to put all of these expectations in front of you. And yet you come to the example that Jesus gives us in verse 1 through verse 5. And Jesus is coming to God and he's not saying, God, me, me, me. It is God, I recognize who you are. And I recognize where you are. And I recognize who I am under you. And there's a place, there's a posture, and there's a purpose. And he reminds us that this is the relationship that Christ has to God. And this relationship mattered when it came to Him praying to God. His relationship matters. So we have an example. So what does Jesus do when He gives us this prayer? He's giving us an example of what our, not just our prayer, but our relationship to God should be like. That we come and we say, I want your glory, not my glory. Now when Jesus prays, does Jesus know what's coming up? Yes. Does he know where Judas has already left to go? Does he know exactly the full extent of the brutality that lays in front of him? Absolutely. Does he know that there will be people that will deny him, spit on him, take advantage of him? Does he know that there are people that he is going to die for their sins who will not appreciate the sacrifice that he paid? And yet, his own personal desires did not get in the way of his spiritual relationship with God. I have been guilty, personally, May hopefully none of you have, but I've been guilty of my prayer life being a reflection of my personal life. So when I'm happy, I pray. When I'm content, I pray. When I'm mad, discouraged, upset, feel wrongly treated, emotionally wayward, I don't pray. And yet what Jesus says, it doesn't matter what's going to happen to me. And it doesn't matter what is coming up next. I am going to pray. So, the first section, chapter 17, is Jesus giving us this picture of His relationship to God. But then you get down to verse 6 through verse 19. And He talks about God's relationship to us. Followers of Jesus Christ. He says, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world but for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world but they are in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one even as we are one. 
while I was with them. I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. Now, that the, or that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask, ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. As Jesus is praying, and you may come... And, and, I've struggled. I've struggled with how does that lay out and exactly um, how does this come out in an orderly way. But what I kept coming back to is this idea that what Jesus is saying is, God, I want to model your relationship with the people that you have sent me to. And he says there in verses 6 through verse 7, if you go back to it, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. He reminds the listener, he reminds the reader, he reminds us that everything comes from God. And you may say, well, of course, everything comes from God, Spence. That is so simple. So why do we get so stingy? Because we're sinners. Yeah, but we get stingy, don't we? We get stingy with our time. We get stingy with our money. We get stingy with our talents and our resources. And when we start feeling so guilty about getting stingy, we just decide to allocate it or already dedicate it to other things and the next thing you know, therefore we can't be guilty of stingy because I've got to make a I've got to make a car payment. I've got to make a mortgage payment. I, I've got to buy this for the kids and I've got to buy that for school and all of these things and we forget that we just find a way to use the things that God has given us to, for our own good. So Jesus reminds them, hey, hey, reader, hey, listener, hey, disciple, like, disciple, hey, follower, remember that everything comes from God. And then you look down in verse 15, he says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but you keep them from the evil one. So not only everything that we have has been given by God, but we are kept by God. Verse 17, he says we are directed by God. And verse 18, he says we are sent by God. Does anything seem odd in this prayer that Jesus is praying to God about the followers of God? He's comparing them with the self. Okay. He's comparing them with himself. <laughs> Do you see something that's missing? One of the things that I, I recognize that is missing, that is so that is so much of a part of our prayer lives today, is he doesn't say, please help Bob, Bill. Ann or Sue with this particular need. He's recognizing and he's praying about who God is in relationship to those that follow after God. It's the subject of the prayers of Christ that strike me that when he's praying 
Yes, he's praying truth. Yes, he's praying awareness. Yes, he's praying acknowledgement. But he's not coming to God and saying, God, you know what? We've got this whole long list of wants and wishes, and God, we want this. No, he comes and he says, God, because you have given us everything, because we are kept by you, because we are directed by you, because we are sent by you, then the subject of our prayer should then be focused on you. Now, some of you may think, well, it is. That's why you pray to God. But maybe record yourself. Well, I don't have any. Get your phone out. Get your memo recorder. And the next time you pray, record yourself. Record yourself and think about when you are praying, what is the subject of your prayer? Is the subject of your prayer God? Or is the subject of your prayer you? I come home after working. And you bust in the door. I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old that's sitting over there. As soon as I bust in, the two-year-old is learning. And he does this. Mirror. 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 Translated, that is, come here, I want to show you something. Mirror, mirror, mirror. The four-year-old will sit there and say, Daddy, watch this. He's learned some trick, some new talent, roll over, sit, play, fetch, whatever the case may be. He has learned something new. But as soon as I come in the door, those two sweet children, all they want is the attention on themselves. And as you grow older, that direction changes. So when I come in the door, and my sweet bride, she looks at me and she'll say, how was your day at work? She's not saying, mirror, mirror, mirror. And she's not saying, come watch this. She's asking, how are you? It's the subject changes with the maturity of the people. And sometimes in our prayer life... It can be a temptation that we come to God and say, God, me, 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 me. And it's a matter of spiritual maturity when we come to God and the subject of our prayer is not me. The subject of my prayer is God. God, you have given me everything that I need. God, you keep my feet from stumbling. God, you are directing my path. God, you are sending me for the plan and the purpose that you had before me. God, all of this revolves around you. And so God, I want at the basic element my prayers to then circle and to be focused on you. And there's a shift. There's a shift that takes place when we think about the focus and the subject of our prayers. Some of you may say, well, Spence, I do pray. I, I say, God, you know, please watch over me. God, take care of me. God, do this, this, this. But yes, but what is the subject? You. The subject is what you want from God. So what Jesus does here in verses... 6 through 19 is he makes this connection of the subject of our prayer. And notice something else that he doesn't do. He doesn't mention the condition of our health, the status of our feelings, or the presence of our desires. 
He says, God, you have given them everything. God, you have kept them. God, everything they have is from you. God, I do not ask, this is verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. 17, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. It all comes back and the focus is on God. There is something, and it's something that's very subtle, and it is very easy to miss. But even when it comes to the songs that we sing in worship to God, when you start listening to music, and it can all be under the banner of Christian music, listen to the subject of the song. One of the dangers that we have in our modern contemporary music is that the subject of the song is on the person and not on the creator. And we must be careful. Now I'm not saying I'm not saying that every song that's ever been produced after 1990, 2000 is bad. I'm just saying we must be careful because They understand that as long as the subject is on the individual, more individuals be led to that and drawn to that because they like the attention to be on themselves. I've been at preaching conferences. Speaker gets up. When you get to some of these bigger preaching conferences, maybe like at Bridgeway or New Church, do they have a screen at the front on the front row? <laughs> I wish someday we'd get one of them. I'd like to just defy it. But anyways, they'll have like a countdown clock, okay? So like you go to some churches, and on the front row, usually out of the, the, plane, the, the field of view, you'll have either a clock that'll say, this is the time, but then a lot of times you'll have a countdown clock saying, this is how much time before we expect for you to be done, right? Okay, so you go to some of these preaching conferences, <clears throat> And this big name speaker will get up and he'll have 30 minutes. And he will spend 20 minutes telling you a story about himself. And 10 minutes talking about God. Why? Because that tickles our ears. We like people focusing on us. We like people talking about us. We like talking about us. And we like the attention to be on us. So when Jesus comes in this prayer, Jesus makes it very clear and he gives us this model. Hey, followers of Jesus Christ, followers of God, remember that when you come and pray to God, it's not about you. It's about God. And that carries over in our worship, that carries over in our relationships, that carries over in the way that we speak, and it carries over into our prayer lives when we start to think, when I come to God to pray, who is the subject that I'm praying to? And he says, we've got to be careful. We've got to be on guard. What's that? And that is true. And that is true. But part of the emphasis of our prayer is we're not praying because God isn't in control. We're praying in part to remind ourselves that God is in control. Just like sometimes when I'm driving down the road, my brakes worked at the last intersection. Sometimes you tap the brakes to make sure they work at this intersection. 
You know that you think they'll work, you trust they'll work, but sometimes you need to be reminded that they work. And a lot of times in our prayer, it's not because by praying, now God is in control. You're praying because God is in control and you're just yielding yourself and saying, God, because you're in control, that is why I'm praying to you. Does that make sense? So the idea that Jesus that, that Jesus is pointing us to is he's reminding us of the subject of our prayers. So the first element that he talked about was his relationship with God being unity and being his relationship to God. But then he talks about our relationship to God and the subject of our prayers. And then this last one, you get down here to verse 20, and he talks about not just his relationship to God, not our relationship to God, but now our relationship to Christ. So read on in verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who believe, who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that I may be one even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved me even as... Loved them, I'm sorry, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am. To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. What is he saying? What is he, what is he getting at? Sometimes you've got to read it and read it and read it and read it. Sometimes you've got to read it slow. Sometimes you've got to read it fast. Sometimes I use a Sean Connery accent and I read it. And then sometimes I use a Clint Eastwood accent and I'll read it. And sometimes I use a John Wayne accent and I'll read it. And sometimes I use a Ronald Whitney accent and I'll read it. And so sometimes, sometimes you just got to read it and read it and read it until you start to see things and start to fold apart. Some people talk about the Word of God as being like an onion. And you have so many layers and you just have to peel and peel and peel and, and, and you're just getting those different layers of that onion as the word of God unfolds. Well, here in in verse 20 through 26, he talks about our relationship with Christ. In verse 20, he talks about our shared identity. I do not ask for these only, but also for these who believe in me that through their word, or that they will be one just as you... Father are in me and I in you that they also may be in us. He's talking about this shared unity that we have in Christ. Because we're followers of Jesus Christ. Because we've been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. Because we've been forgiven of our sins through the work of Christ on the cross. We now have a shared identity with Christ. Hopefully, you'll understand the connection here in a few moments. Not only do we have a shared identity in Christ, but we also have a unity in Christ. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, 
I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you have an identity in Christ. You have a unity in Christ. And then also the last part, verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. So he says, when you're in Christ, you have an identity. You have a unity, and you have a certain element of the glory of God. And you may say, well, then Spence, what does that matter when it comes to my prayer life? You're not just an ordinary person. You have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit inside of you. You have the blood of Jesus Christ covering you. Hebrews talks about we are fellow heirs with Christ. The Bible talks about that we have been now set apart. We have now been sanctified. We have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're not just a regular old Joe Schmo. You have an eternity secured in heaven. And much more than that, you have a direct access to God through your identity in Christ. <coughs> we do not realize what a gift it is to be able to say, I am in Christ and He is in me. Years ago, I had a cousin sold cowboy boots at Teeners. And one of his customers was a DJ on a 101.9 The Twister. I don't know if it's still a country music station. I don't know. if Back in a certain period of time, that was the, the hippity-hopping place. So I was one of his best customers. So talent, country music talent would come to town. Well, the DJ would come in there and buy boots at a cheap price from the cousin. The cousin would work the DJ. And next thing you know, my parents would have backstage tickets, backstage passes. And, it beca- and so they could get back. And I remember one time, Mark Chestnut came to town. My parents got to go backstage. They got to meet Mark Chestnut. They got a picture with Mark Chestnut. Why? What's wrong with Mark Chestnut? Okay. They got a picture with Mark Chestnut. They got, they got a picture that signed by Mark Chestnut. And I remember my parents coming home being so excited because they got to meet Mark Chestnut. That, a lot of y'all don't even know. That's how popular he is. And that's how good he is that most of you don't even, some of you, especially like why, it's like I have no idea. I have no idea that Bubba shot the jukebox. So it's kind of... <laughs> Maybe. But when I think about it, the only reason my parents got to go meet Mark Chestnut was because they're related to a guy that sold cowboy boots who gave a really good discount to a DJ that worked at a radio station that happened to be able to get his hands on backstage passes. It was because of my parents' connection with a cousin and a DJ and a promoter that they got to go meet Mark Chestnut. If they had just showed up at the concert and said, my name's Wayne McConnell, I'm here to meet Mark Chestnut, they would be like, great. Get your stand, get your seat in the stands. There would have been no connection. But because of his connection, he was able to go straight to the performer himself. 
how does that relate to this picture that Christ has given us? Christ is saying, do you not understand? Because of your identity in Christ, you have direct access to God. You don't have to go through the priest. You don't have to go through the pastor. You don't have to go through the Sunday school teacher. You don't have to go through the Hail Marys. You don't have to go through all of these avenues. You have access straight to God. Why? Not because of who you are, but because of who you are in Christ. And none of us in this room fully understand just what that means. But I suspect that in a thousand years from now, we will fully and or more fully understand just what that means to have the identity of Christ over us. That, that should impact your prayer life. That should impact how you come to the Father. That should impact the subject of your prayer. That should impact the content of your prayer. That should impact our desire to pray when we realize that we have an identity in Christ. What did Christ do when He was in the Father? He prayed. His heart was there. He understood that not everything was going to be sunshine and roses, but He had the heart to pursue and pursue after God. Then what Jesus says is because our identity is in Him, that therefore our prayer life should reflect Jesus' prayer life. So then that takes me back to asking a question of you. So then what is the goal of our prayers? God's will. God's will? Okay. To draw closer to God? Okay. What? Connection. Connection? Okay. Any other ideas? Well, like in Philippians 4, 6, it says, Don't worry about anything, but everything through prayer and petition. With thanksgiving, present your request to God. Okay. So, I mean, like we... I understand what you went over, but also, you know, when we ask them for the prayer line, or prayer line, Sure. And we pray for that people. You know, pray that your will be... <clears throat> yeah, the intercession on that person's behalf. I mean... We're still told to do that, too. Absolutely. And I don't think there's anything wrong. Because you go back to the very beginning of John chapter 17, and he's praying. He's praying for the people that God had given him. And you go um, <clears throat> there as he continues on, <clears throat> and he says in verse 9, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. So he is interceding, and he is petitioning. And I, There's nothing wrong with saying, hey, there's physical, emotional, spiritual needs that we need to pray for. But what is the goal of our praying then? To be one with Him. To be one with Him? Is the goal for those needs to be met? The goal is to give glory where it's due, just to acknowledge okay. what, what, what's bigger than ourselves and what's going on the entire time is like God is existing and we should always be giving Him glory and yet we don't. Because we're busy and have tiny, tiny lives. And so prayer, a big part of prayer is stopping our tiny lives and just acknowledging all of this. Yeah. Praising God. Yeah. Giving thanks. 
see Jesus submitting himself to God's will. Yeah. You know, it's like the submission of our flesh. Like, you know, Jesus is fully man, and he knows what he's about to go through. And so he's submitting his flesh to what's before him. Right. I mean, and we can do the same thing. It's like, do you always want to pray? No. But we can submit our flesh. That's right. And to do it. That's right. So I, I wrote down, what is the goal of our prayers? To be so close to Christ that our heart is His heart. So you go back to the first few verses of chapter 17 and you hear the heart of Christ as He's praying to the Father. And then from verse 16 down through verse verse 19, then you see, okay, and this is God's relationship to the follower. And then he talks about our relationship to Christ. And so the goal of our prayer, yes, is to intercede. Yes, to lift people up. Yes, to give glory to God. Yes, to humble our flesh. All these things are good and all these things are true. But one of the goals of prayer then is to recognize that in Christ we can come and we can strive to have the heart of Christ. So that when God hears our prayers and we are to write our prayers down, you wouldn't be able to tell the prayers of us or the prayers of Christ. And sometimes we get very just rushed in our prayers. And sometimes our prayers become more of just a duty or habit, obligation, or guilt. And we stop realizing that because of who we are in Christ and because of what we are in Christ, we then have an opportunity to develop the discipline to pray like Christ. And He gives us the model. He gives us the example of how He prays. And we can come back to this and say... Is my heart like Christ's heart? So, what can we learn? Just a few things out of this chapter. First thing I want you to realize is that a small view of prayer leads to a small appreciation of prayer. When we don't necessarily see the power or the purpose or the opportunity of prayer, we can often just say, well, then prayer is not a big deal. And I realize that we can go around the room and we can share a time of testimony about how we've seen God answer prayer, and that is good, and that is profitable, and that is encouraging. But how many times do we go around talking about how we have learned to pray more like Christ? How we have learned to have more of the heart of Christ? How we have learned to have the same submission and contentment in the things of God like Christ? So not only does a small view of prayer lead to a small appreciation of prayer, but our prayers will not exceed our connection to God. So the most intimate prayers we have in the Word of God are the people that were the most closely connected with God. Jesus prays. The disciples pray in Acts 4. Does anybody remember what happens? Immediately after the disciples pray? The ground shake. The ground starts to shake, right? They pray to an earthquake. Okay? I mean, it's like the power of prayer, but it wasn't just because of the content of the prayer. It was their connection to God in prayer. 
we forget that we think that we can live our lives doing whatever we want, however we want, and then we come to God and God's obligated to hear us. Well, we know that God has, that we have an ear to God, but do you not think that God's like, who are you again? I haven't talked to you in a week. Where'd you come from? Uh, you ever think that God's like, really? You're going to come to me and because everybody's watching you. You're going to act like you're all spiritual. But I know the condition of your heart. I know the status of your heart. This goes back all the way to Matthew chapter 6. When you have the Pharisees standing on the street corners, putting on the show, making a big deal. And God says, blah. That's the English translation. Blah. I don't have any, I don't, I don't have any stomach for it. And sometimes we forget that our connection to God will be reflective in our prayers to God and our prayers to God will be reflected of our connection to God. The last one is, is our object in prayer will reveal our grasp of prayer. When we come to God, what are we praying for? For more of God? Or for more of ourselves? We'll go to God and we'll say, God, I want you to do this, I want you to do this, I want you to do this. God, I need this. God, I'm asking for help in this. And, da, 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 da. and you'll go through all that list. And I'm not saying those are always bad. But are we praying for more of God? More of the presence of God? The conviction of God? The connection with God? The glory of of God the heart of God is the subject of our prayers God or is the subject of our prayers something else when Jesus comes here in John chapter 17 theme all the way throughout the chapter is it goes back to God. Sometimes we have to ask ourselves because the differences can be small, the differences can be easy to miss and we can find ourselves in such a place of being conditioned that we just assume because we're praying it is always about God. Or we don't stop to think, what is the focus? What is the subject? What is the purpose? What is the goal? Prayer that's not focused on God is missing the mark of prayer. So I encourage you, I encourage you to think about the attitude that you approach prayer with. I encourage you to think about the purpose by which you approach prayer with. I encourage you to think about the heart that you approach prayer with. And I encourage you to think about just what a great gift prayer gives us. That I get to do what Jesus got to do. I got to do what Jesus would give up sleep and time with people to go and do. I got to talk directly. I I get to talk directly to my heavenly Father. Just like Jesus 
did. What a gift. What a gift that is. Other thoughts? Corrections? Pushbacks? Moses, to, um, not Moses, um, <laughs> Exodus 32, I think is where it's at, um, right after the golden calf incident, and God tells Moses, Moses, I'm going to wipe them all out, I'm going to start with you, and I'm going to start over with you, everybody's going to get wiped out, and the paraphrase that I'm just going to give you is Moses goes to God and says, uh, God, you know what? If you do that, then the Egyptians will say, we told you so. And then everybody else will be like, God's not a good God. God's not a loving God. And then it uses the word, and I can't remember how it is in the English, but it was something that God relented. Yes. So sometimes people have keyed in on that. Or you go to Genesis chapter 6, and when God sees the evilness in the world, it says that God regretted. So you will see instances where where it, on the first reading, on the straight reading, we think God changed his mind. What changed God's mind? Well, then that gives us a theological train wreck. Because if we can change the mind of God, then God, thereby by definition, cannot be God. And if God in his foreknowledge and God in his omniscience, all-knowing, was there something that God said, Moses, I'm going to wipe him out. And then Moses is like, God, did you consider that? And God's like, oh yeah, didn't, didn't catch that one. Good catch, Moses. Well, that wrecks our theological attributes of God. So where I am choosing to camp out at, right now in this season of understanding is that there's some things that we might take for God changing his mind that are really just the unfolding of the providence of God. So there's some things that we get done (coughs) with a ball game. (coughs) I've already decided in my heart because I know that these children are going to ask for ice cream. And I've already decided in my mind that, yeah, I don't mind if we stop by Brahms and get ice cream. But I also want to make sure that they, you know, that either they ask for it or we have a conversation about it. I've already decided this is what's going to happen, but I want their participation in this event. So where I'm choosing to camp out today, and I've got people that I'm camped with right now, but where I'm at is that when Moses goes and petitions God, it wasn't... It wasn't necessarily that God was changing his mind, because sometimes that translation can get a little clunky, but it was that 
He was wanting to see the heart of Moses for the people. So when you talk about the righteous prayer of a man availeth much, well, does that mean that one prayer can change the mind of God? I can't be there because of the train wreck that gives us theologically that has ramifications all over the place. But where I can be at is that God in his foreknowledge knows the hearts and God in his foreknowledge then you know already knows what's going to happen and that is there in the book of James to then give us a recognition that there is a power and there is a purpose and there is a reason for people to be intimate with God in prayer because when we recognize the connection that people have then that elevates the importance of prayer I don't know if that answers your question. Sometimes you start off with things that you can't go along with. Sometimes the process of elimination, and then get down to saying, okay, so these are my options that I, that I have left. Um, I heard, oh, he's the pastor of Brooklyn Tabernacle up in the East Coast. Wrote a book, Strange Fire. Nobody. Strange fire is John MacArthur, isn't it? Wait, he he did have a strange fire conference, yes. Oh, who's the guy? Brooklyn Tabernacle. Does the prayer meetings. So well known. Oh, come on, people. Can't leave me hanging. Ah. No. No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Please, please, please. Anyway, so I heard him. I heard him in Oklahoma City at an evangelism conference and he made the statement about that our prayers are being kept in bowls and he inferred that the more you pray it's like the more rifle tickets you buy so that increases your chances of God then responding to your prayers now I may have completely misunderstood what he was trying to get at but I thought I can't be there I I can't be at that campsite because no I'm not doing that what? Jim Cimbala. Yeah, thank you. Jim Cimbala. You left me hanging. You left me hanging. Okay. So, but I remember listening to Jim Cimbala talk like that, and I thought, no. But at the same time, we can't discount and say, well, you know, what's the point of praying? But do I think our prayers have an effect? Yes. Do they affect purpose of God not on God's side but on our side that's where I'm at yes ma'am so when he prays and the archangel God dispatches the archangel to come and answer his questions yeah and in verse 12 this is the angel talking. He says, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and not humbling yourself and on humbling yourself before God. Your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. So I'm, I'm just saying I agree. So God, yeah, so God hears. But then the story gets all <laughs> the story gets weird because he says he was hindered. Yeah. For like what? Days, Four, battling it out. Yeah. Yeah. 
21 days. I mean, that's like some... Right. Another important part that we get to touch on this week was we were to pray through the heavens. Pray through the heavens. Yes. Um, I forget where it's at in the Bible right now, but it, um, he's talking about praying through the heavens. Okay. So you look into the heavens, and there's three different heavens in the Bible. Okay. And um, so if you think of it that way, and then so Michael's coming down through the heavens, so he's having to battle his way through back end. Huh. That's what I envision. Okay. Huh. All right. So in Peter 5, where he says, um, verse 7, says, that verse that kept coming to my mind the whole time you're talking is casting all our cares upon him is, uh, for he cares for us. But if you go back and you look at that, above that, three verses up, three verses down, talking about submitting to God and resisting the devil, right? And so that's my brain's doing this mental gymnastics the whole time you're talking because that's about the posture. That is about our obedience. That is about us being in the right place to take those things to God for him to for us to be able to be in that position in that heart posture to cast those things upon him and he cares for us enough to deal with us. That's right. Yeah, that's good. Okay. What time Wednesday? Six? Y'all act like you're already asleep. All right. Six o'clock on Wednesday? We all know. We're wondering why you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> well, Miss Jenna, Uh-oh. the reason is is because not everybody that I'm looking at right now was here last Wednesday at 6. Uh-huh. So apparently there's some in this room that like don't realize that that's what we do at 6. So I'm just, you know, it's my way of casting the net wide. So, okay. So next Sunday night we're going to be where? Acts where? Acts 4. Okay. Glad that you all are spending your evenings with me. I'm glad I get to spend my evenings with you. Thank you all for being here. Mr. Matt, would you be willing to close us in a word of prayer?